As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Early Stuart England, Episode 37, The Miserable Combustion of War. Last time, we walked through James's most successful parliament to date. Francis Bacon had advised James to afford his subjects the time to deal with the grievances of the kingdom and trust that the result would be national unity and a generous contribution to royal coffers. Events had vindicated Bacon's faith in his fellow subjects. Well, for James, anyway. Bacon, now relegated to the sidelines in disgrace, probably didn't feel all that vindicated. Aside from his own perpetual need for cash, the newfound support of Parliament provided James with valuable diplomatic leverage. With his subjects firmly behind him, and indeed urging him to protect his family's interests in Europe, James's word carried greater weight in the courts of Europe. Parliament had provided tangible evidence that money and manpower for military ventures would be in ready supply. James had also called a Parliament in Scotland at the same time, which had both ratified the controversial Articles of Perth and voted the King £70,000 in expectation of the coming military necessity. It would be the final achievement in the career of the Earl of Dumfriesland, who died in the following summer. He had been an able statesman, and both James and later Charles would struggle to find a replacement capable of matching his achievements. With both England and Scotland firmly behind him, James turned his attention back to Europe. For the task of communicating English demands to the continent, James chose the most experienced diplomat he had at hand, John Digby. We've met Digby before. He was the ambassador to Spain who contributed evidence of communications between the Howard family and Spanish agents during the Overbury trials. Aside from that brief return home, Digby spent eight years in Madrid, from 1610 to 1618, negotiating a marriage between the English prince, first Henry, and then, when he died, Charles, to a Spanish princess. Digby had haggled the Spanish up to a dowry of £600,000, but Spain refused to budge on his demand for toleration for English Catholics. This experience with a tangled web of Habsburg politics made Digby the ideal man to present Europe with England's new bargaining position. James hoped to translate the leverage he had won in Parliament into a reassessment of the stalled marriage negotiations. The logic was straightforward, or at least as straightforward as things got in the Thirty Years' War. Spain and England were ideal brokers for a peace. Each of them saw war within the empire as an unwanted distraction, and each had family links to the key players of that war. 
James was father-in-law to Frederick, and Philip III of Spain was the Habsburg cousin of Emperor Ferdinand. The old Anglo-Spanish marriage was the perfect instrument to bring about a peace. As Parliament started to wrap things up in May, Digby began his European tour. He first arrived, as all English diplomats seem to, in Brussels. You recall that troops from the Spanish Netherlands had started the ball rolling in 1620 by marching into the Lower Palatine. There they remained, occupying much of the territory, except for a few fortresses held by Veer's English volunteers. Several simultaneous events threw this situation into flux just as Digby arrived. First was the much-anticipated end to the Twelve Years' Truce between Spain and the United Provinces. The truce expired in April, and Spain's attention was once again squarely focused on the Dutch. But in addition to that, Spanish leadership in both the Netherlands and the empire as a whole had been radically altered. In March 1621, Philip III of Spain died, succeeded by his son, the 16-year-old Philip IV. Just weeks later, Archduke Albert, who ruled in the Spanish Netherlands, died as well. Much would hang on the teenage king's take on European affairs. Digby's initial assessment amidst the confusion which reigned in the Spanish Netherlands was that Philip's priority would be the Dutch rather than the empire. If England could ensure that Spain's fragile lines of supply up the Rhine were not threatened by a joint Palatine-Dutch alliance, Digby was confident that Spain would much rather have its armies in the Netherlands than occupying Frederick's lands in Germany. He reported back home that, in principle, he had established the framework of a truce with Spain in the Palatine. Next, Digby traveled to Vienna to meet with the emperor in July. You recall that the previous year's diplomatic mission had failed due to Frederick's unwillingness to give up on Bohemia and the strength of the imperial military position. Digby had reason to hope that both these obstacles had been removed. Firstly, Frederick's claim to Bohemia was now dead and gone. The issue on the table now was the Palatine. Even James agreed that Frederick had been a bad boy in Bohemia, but in the Palatine, Frederick was not a usurper, but a prince of the empire defending his ancestral home. Secondly, Emperor Ferdinand's position had somewhat weakened since the victory at White Mountain. Sure, the Bohemians had been crushed and brought under Habsburg rule again, but the resumption of the Dutch-Spanish War threatened to distract Ferdinand's Spanish allies. Also, the Transylvanian prince, Bethlen Gabor, was on the prowl again, this time backed by an Ottoman Empire eager to see their imperial rivals squirm. So Digby's confidence was well-founded, and Emperor Ferdinand was open to talking things out. Both sides agreed that the time had come for a negotiated settlement, and major campaigning stopped while the details could be hashed out. The problem, of course, lay in those details. The most glaring detail was the guy at the center of this European disaster, Frederick. As a gesture of goodwill, Digby assured the imperial diplomats that James could get Frederick to renounce his claim to the Bohemian crown. Surely even that knucklehead could see that the Bohemian ship had sailed. But no, Frederick again stubbornly refused his father-in-law's services as mediator and persisted in his claims from Dutch exile. Ferdinand had his own difficulties in bringing the key actors on his side to the table. The army that had defeated the Bohemians at White Mountain had not been a Habsburg force. Most of the men, and Count Tilly, the victorious general, had been in the employ of the Catholic League, led by Maximilian, Duke of Bavaria. Maximilian was an ambitious man, and his aid had not come cheap. 
Ferdinand had promised him a chunk of Frederick's lands in the Palatine, and more importantly, Frederick's seat in the Imperial Electoral College. Even the most favorable settlement Ferdinand could expect from James would force him to renege on those promises. Frederick would be needing both his land and his electoral dignity. This put the emperor in a bind. To put it bluntly, Ferdinand feared angering Maximilian more than he feared disappointing James. The summer, therefore, turned into an awkward stalemate. Both Digby and the imperial diplomats realized that, despite any agreement they might come to, the real power to end the conflict lay in the hands of Frederick and Maximilian. This was not promising, as both men had reputations for being long on ambition and short on sober reflection. Digby even suspected, probably accurately, that Frederick's agents were actively undermining him at the imperial court. In the end, as so many times before, it was Frederick who put an end to the fumbling negotiations. Ernst von Mansfeld, the mercenary general Frederick had hired back in 1618, had by this time reassembled his army to help in the defense of the Lower Palatine. In the late summer of 1621, he began attacking Habsburg forces in the area, bringing an end to the informal ceasefire that accompanied negotiations. No one doubted that Mansfeld was operating under orders from Frederick, who had once again proven that James did not speak for him at the negotiating table. With talks apparently pointless, Ferdinand once again affirmed his promises to Maximilian and asked him to hunt down Frederick's general once and for all. This proved easier said than done, and Mansfield was actually successful in relieving the siege of Frankenthal, one of the Palatine's key fortresses, in October. That same month, Digby returned to England in failure. Despite his initial optimism, he had come to see Ferdinand as an unreliable negotiating partner. Either he was negotiating in bad faith and had merely been dragging things out all summer, or he was at the mercy of Maximilian's Catholic League. Either way, the path to peace did not go through the emperor. Digby's arrival back in London immediately set off a chain of events. James recognized that the show of unity in the first session of Parliament had not been intimidating enough to bring about a resolution as he had hoped. It was time to up the stakes. Parliament was due to meet again in February, but James called for an immediate session to deal with the crisis. No one doubted James's intent. This was to be a war parliament. On the 22nd of November, the men of Parliament once again assembled at Westminster. John Williams, a Welsh clergyman and Bacon's replacement as Lord Keeper, opened the session with a clear message. The king could not afford to waste an hour on the discussion of domestic affairs. Events in Germany required their immediate attention. The sword is in hand, Williams announced to the Parliament. Its use is our concern here. The statement was a momentous one, and not just because it was the first time the Crown had openly signaled that war was on the table. James, through Williams, was making a profound constitutional concession. Of all the prerogatives that the English monarch guarded closely, none was more sacrosanct than the sole right to determine foreign policy. Parliament not only couldn't make foreign policy decisions, it couldn't even discuss foreign policy without the express invitation of the Crown. This was just such an explicit invitation. James was asking his Parliament how he ought to respond to Habsburg aggression. Lionel Cranfield and John Digby followed this invitation up by actively pushing the House of Commons towards a possible war. As trusted royal officials, their words were understood as those of James himself. 
For the purposes of understanding the course of the Parliament and its aftermath, it's worth dwelling on this unconventional opening. A more standard approach would have been for James to decide to intervene in the conflict, and then present his decision to Parliament in order to secure funding. That he did not, that he treated Parliament as an advisory body, can be explained by his view of events in Europe. Despite all that had happened, James still held out hope for a diplomatic resolution. He was playing a very gradual game of escalation. If a general expression of support in Parliament was not enough to convince the Habsburgs he was serious, then maybe a more specific expression of war goals would get the message across. But this was a dangerous game, politically speaking. In effect, James was using his subjects in Parliament as pawns in a larger process of negotiation. Including these men in the decision-making process also invested them in that process. James would find that while engaging his subjects gave him more power abroad, it complicated how his decisions were perceived at home. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. For their part, the men of Parliament responded to the King's invitation for input with ambivalence. On the one hand, they were eager to take part in what was surely the most important matter of their generation. The fate of Europe hung in the balance, and although it would be an exaggeration to say that the popular consensus was in favor of war, there was a growing frustration with James's anemic response to the Habsburg threat so far. Nostalgic memories of Elizabethan glories mixed with anxieties about the news from Europe. Since the Battle of White Mountain a year ago, the news from Europe had been almost uniformly bad for the Protestant cause. With the Dutch conflict reignited, it looked like the Habsburg were hell-bent on purging Europe of every Protestant soul. But this desire to intervene in the godly cause was tempered by caution. Although they had received a clear invitation from James to discuss the war, the men in Parliament knew that James would react poorly to any perceived infringement on his prerogatives. Before the spring session of Parliament, James had issued a royal proclamation, barring the discussion of foreign affairs in public. This was not unusual, as foreign policy was the prerogative of the king and no one else, but it was taken as a sign that James would be especially prickly about the European crisis. One incident highlights the heightened tensions within English society. At one of the public readings of this proclamation, an Englishman accidentally stepped on the toe of a Spaniard standing near him. The Spanish fellow promptly punched the Englishman in the face and interrupted his subsequent protestations by punching him again. Rumor quickly changed the story into that of an Englishman being assaulted by a Spaniard on the streets of London, rendered unable to defend himself by James's ban on anti-Spanish talk. Despite James's open invitation, the discussion of any possible war would have to proceed carefully, 
lest the Parliament be wrecked by mutual recriminations between Crown and subject, as so many previous sessions had been. And there are plenty of sandbars just below the surface for Parliament to run aground on. The first was the question of what this war was about. James had been working hard since 1619 to define the conflict narrowly. This was about protecting the dynastic rights and territory of his son-in-law, not religion. In fact, James had repeatedly refused to cast the war as religious in nature. If Europe descended into a continental war of Catholic against Protestant, Christendom might collapse in upon itself. More importantly for his own kingdom, James worried that once stirred up, religious passions would ruin his fragile big tent church and divide England. But James also had more practical reasons for limiting the scope of the war. He knew that in order to truly threaten the Habsburgs, he would need allies outside of the Protestant camp. The French, for instance, or various Italian states. Such Catholic states would gladly join a campaign to check Habsburg power, but it was unlikely they'd sign up for a Protestant crusade. However, for the average Englishman following events in Europe through news material arriving from the continent, the war was very clearly about religion. For the more hot-headed Puritans, this was the apocalyptical end-time struggle that they had been preparing for since the end of Elizabeth's reign. But even to men of a more sober disposition, the signs seemed unambiguous. Hadn't all this started when Protestant Bohemians defended their religion against Catholic assault? I mean, the army that beat the Bohemians at White Mountain literally fought under the banner of the Catholic League. How much clearer does it get? And yet, to openly label this as a religious war risked drawing the ire of James. Secondly, the issue of how and where England would fight this war was similarly fraught with potential conflicts. Again, seeking to narrowly contain the war, James was adamant that the target had to be the Palatine. To expand the war into other theaters risked turning the regional conflict into a continental one. For the armchair generals in the House of Commons, this was patently absurd. James was allowing diplomatic imperatives to trump basic common sense. War in Germany would be tremendously costly, supplying armies in the landlocked Palatine would be difficult, and England would be playing to its weaknesses. The Habsburgs commanded far larger armies than England could ever manage. Fighting a land war in Germany would be pointless. Furthermore, England was still in the midst of a trade depression. A land war was not only likely to end in failure, but it was likely to cost far more than England could afford in its current state. So if Germany emphasized England's military weaknesses, where did its strengths lie? To answer that, you only had to look to the recent Elizabethan past. England ruled the seas. The greatest threat England could pose to the Habsburgs was with her fleets. English ships could harry any seaborne attempts to supply the Spanish Netherlands. They could raid the Spanish coast and most important of all, seized the valuable treasure fleet that brought gold and silver to Spain from the New World. England could not beat the Habsburgs on land, but they could beat them at sea. Of course, this would make the war an Anglo-Spanish one, which was not James's goal at all. For James, Spain was a potential ally in convincing the emperor to negotiate. He was still in talks to marry his son Charles to a Spanish princess, and James well knew that Spain was more concerned with the Dutch than imperial entanglements. The idea was to put diplomatic pressure on Spain, not wage war against them. These fundamentally opposed views of the war complicated what on the surface appeared to be a consensus in the November Parliament. 
It has to be said that James did not help matters by following his usual custom of hunting while Parliament was sitting. He delegated the management of Parliament to a set of royal officials. Buckingham joined James on his hunting trip and monopolized the lines of communication between the King and Westminster. For most of the session, Prince Charles, taking his first active role in public life, met with the Privy Council every night to dissect the events of the day, then reported to Buckingham, who would then relay information to James and transmit instructions back. The whole process slowed communications, left councillors in the dark, who then went on to send ambiguous or contradictory messages to Parliament, and gave Buckingham a great deal of control. The result was confusion and uncertainty. As we've seen in the past, when the Crown failed to provide Parliament with direction, it eventually followed its own counterproductive path. After a couple days of tentative toe-dipping, on the 26th of November, one Commons man, Dudley Diggs, rose and provided the debate with some much-needed focus. Born in 1582, Dudley was the son of Thomas Diggs, a mathematician and occasional soldier. In fact, his father had been comrades with the great Elizabethan statesman, the Earl of Leicester, and Leicester was actually Dudley's godfather. His association with the great men of England continued at university, where he studied under George Abbott, the future Archbishop of Canterbury, who in turn introduced him to Robert Cecil, the future Earl of Salisbury. But while Diggs had connections with great men at court, his true passion was trade. Diggs had been there in the early days of the Virginia Company, Prince Henry's attempts at finding the Northwest Passage, and the founding of the East India Company. His debut in the public sphere came in the Parliament of 1614, when he voiced strong opposition to impositions, arguing that they made English merchants less competitive. This was promptly followed by his first, but not last, run-in with royal authorities. After the Parliament, he was briefly arrested, and a manuscript he was writing about trade policy was burned. But Diggs didn't stay locked up for long, and by 1618 he found himself in Russia, negotiating a loan from the East India Company to the Tsar, Michael. The Tsar proved to be a tough negotiator, and at one point it seemed that Michael would be content with just seizing the £10,000 advance Diggs had brought with him and calling it a day. But the resourceful Diggs managed to skip town just in time. All of which is to say that in November of 1621, Diggs may have been a problematic guy to be steering debate in the House of Commons. He had a history, from the Crown's perspective, of being a troublemaker in Parliament, and he had connections to anti-Catholic figures like Abbott and the trading company set. As it happened, Diggs had just returned from the Netherlands, where he was attempting to resolve a dispute between the East India Company and a Dutch trading company, so he knew the lay of the land in Europe. Fighting in Germany, he argued, would be folly for England. England's influence would be most effective against Spain and its vulnerable sea routes, so it only made sense to fight the Spanish. It was silly to split hairs, as the Spanish still occupied much of the Palatine, so either way we'd be fighting Spanish troops. It would of course be easy to see Diggs's contribution as a continuation of the independent-mindedness which landed him in hot water in 1614. But in fact, it is typical of the confused autumn session of 1621 that Diggs actually thought he was making himself useful to the crown with his speech. He'd been having problems with his personal finances and had recently been forced to sell his shares in the East India Company to meet his debts. In the autumn of 1621, Diggs made the decision to get out of the merchant investing game and into public service. He hoped to prove his worth by securing a consensus between the crown and parliament. 
In fact, he had met with the Privy Council the night before and ran his speech by them for their approval, which they gave. Not for the first time, the royal position on the war was unclear. Diggs's speech set the agenda for the following days, and the House of Commons turned to debating a naval campaign against Spain. In this, they received further signs of royal approval. Richard Weston, who James continued to use as a diplomatic representative in Europe, pointed out the merits of an expedition against the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean. Robert Heath, the Attorney General, seconded him. Traditionally, men who held royal offices, as Weston and Heath did, spoke for the King in the House of Commons. The King himself only addressed Parliament in special assemblies, and so royal officials were useful as day-to-day intermediaries between the King and Parliament. So many in Parliament naturally took these contributions as signals from James that he approved of a Spanish naval war. However, it is still unclear whether Weston and Heath were speaking as royal agents or private members. On the 28th of November, the House of Commons voted the King a single subsidy to support the war effort. Although this seems a paltry amount, Parliament had already voted subsidies earlier in the year, and the naval war they were now heading for would surely pay for itself in Spanish booty. If there were any reservations, the following day they received the clearest confirmation yet of royal approval for their discussions. George Goring, a member of Buckingham's inner circle of friends, proposed that the House petition James to declare war on Spain. This seemed to be an unmistakable statement from the top of the administration. James was prepared for a Spanish war, and all he required to move was the vocal support of his parliament. They therefore produced a draft right away. In addition to war, Parliament also called for stricter enforcement of anti-Catholic laws and the breaking off of marriage negotiations with Spain. After all, waging war and arranging for a dynastic union were mutually exclusive actions. The idyllic atmosphere of consensus ended when James received word of the petition. Far from supporting a war with Spain, James was still determined to limit the conflict to the Palatine. He was willing to fight against Spanish troops in that theatre, but hoped to maintain open lines of dialogue with Spain elsewhere. Additionally, the suggestion that Parliament could advise James on a family matter like the marriage of his son was a grave encroachment on his prerogative. James treated the petition as an insult, and after Parliament ended, he would arrest the man who had proposed the additional clause about the marriage negotiations, Robert Phillips. Undoubtedly, James now wished he had dealt with Phillips earlier and banished him from Parliament, as he had Southampton and Sandus. Speaking of Edwin Sandus, Parliament responded to the rude rebuff of their petition by opening a debate on the presence, or lack thereof, of Edwin Sandus. Although he had been released from the Tower during the summer, James had insisted that he make himself scarce when Parliament resumed. Sandus complied and excused himself from the November session on account of illness. The House of Commons had thus far accepted this explanation. To press the issue would have raised thorny questions about parliamentary privilege. The king intimidating a member against taking his seat was a grave threat to Parliament standing. But as there were no more good relations with the king to maintain, Parliament now began to ask troubling questions about what was keeping Sandus away. A familiar standoff quickly emerged. James accused Parliament of infringing on his privileges, while Parliament countered with their own accusations of royal overreach. What had looked so promising at the beginning of November turned into yet another disastrous Parliament by Christmas. Despite an obvious concern to avoid treading on the King's feet in the realm of foreign policy, the House of Commons had done precisely that. 
And so, at the end of December, James made a rare visit to Westminster and dissolved the 1621 Parliament, as he had his previous ones, amidst general acrimony. The king's concluding remarks offer a stark contrast to his conciliatory opening in January. As he told the Parliament to go home, he complained that, We rather expected you should have given us thanks for so long maintaining a settled peace in all our dominions, when as all our neighbors about are in miserable combustion of war. James further demonstrated his displeasure by arresting the men who he saw as the biggest troublemakers in Parliament. As I mentioned earlier, this included Robert Phillips, the man who had suggested the king break off marriage negotiations with Spain. Edward Cook was also rounded up, with James no doubt eyeing his earlier cooperation with Southampton and Sandus quite suspiciously now. Another Parliament man worth mentioning in this group was John Pym, a 37-year-old lawyer who had made a lot of noise about the great Catholic threat they ought to be fighting. It won't be the last time we see him. So what had gone wrong? Parliament and King seemed to be on the same page when they broke up for the summer in June, and all evidence points to the House of Commons taking reasonable precautions in not overstepping their authority during their deliberations. And yet we end up in the same old place, with accusations and counter-accusations of one body infringing upon the other. The Parliament of 1621 introduced a theme which will be recurring in the coming war years, a disagreement between the Crown and subject about what the Thirty Years' War was all about. Despite James's pacifist closing remarks, the problem wasn't that Parliament was pro-war and James was anti-war. In fact, there was real anxiety within the House of Commons about the cost of war. The problem was, and would continue to be, that the Crown tended to see the conflict in Europe in dynastic terms, whereas the majority of the populace saw it in religious terms. As a result, James, and later Charles, would often make decisions which seemed to undermine the Protestant cause mostly because they weren't fighting for the Protestant cause. They were fighting a dynastic war against the Habsburgs. Similarly, Parliament often made pursuing that dynastic war difficult, as they threw up obstacles in England's search for Catholic allies. Frustratingly, each side found the other less than fully committed to the war they wanted to be fighting. But blame in 1621 also has to lie with James himself, who was guilty of being too cute by half. He had hoped that Parliament would increase his leverage with Spain, but fall short of committing him to open war against Spain outside of the Palatine. This plan was irresponsibly optimistic about his ability to manage the contours of debate in Parliament. He couldn't very well tell Parliament that they were performing a semi-bluff function in his ongoing negotiations. The threat had to be real. But in making it real, James lost control of it. Neither did James do himself any favors by absenting himself from Westminster for most of the winter session. His plan called for a carefully managed parliament, and instead his royal officers seemed as ineffective as ever at determining the course of debate. Even with a largely cooperative house that seemed to actively seek direction from the crown, administration leadership failed. It is tough to piece together what the royal strategy was in the winter session, and you can't help but get the sense that the Privy Council never fully understood James's aims. Certainly Dudley Diggs didn't think he was working against the royal program with his call for a naval war against Spain. And Heath and Weston may have been voicing personal rather than official positions in supporting Diggs, but they certainly wouldn't have voiced those opinions if they thought James would object. Poor organization and management on the part of the administration has to be a prime suspect in this investigation.
but you'll notice that I didn't throw Buckingham's friend George Goring in with Weston and Heath as ill-informed royal advisors. That's because, in his case, something more sinister was happening in the winter of 1621. Goring hadn't merely voiced an opinion on the war. He had proposed significant action, the all-important petition to the king. It's highly unlikely, bordering on impossible, that Goring would have taken that action unless he had been specifically directed to by Buckingham. And of all of the king's advisers, Buckingham was the one man who could not plead ignorance as to James's goals. He was with the king every day in the royal manors outside of London, providing James with reports on Parliament and relaying royal orders back to the city. Goring's proposal therefore looks less like a mistaken attempt to fulfill James's wishes, and more like a deliberate attempt to divide the king and Parliament. Buckingham knew better than anyone that pressing James into a naval war with Spain would cause him to halt Parliament in its tracks. Of course, every good conspiracy theory needs an underlying motive. So, assuming Buckingham did intentionally wreck the Parliament of 1621, what exactly was he trying to achieve? To answer that, we have to track back to last episode, and that seed Sandus and Southampton had planted in their attempt to oust Buckingham. Here, I am referring to the investigation into corruption in Ireland. Although Southampton and Sandus had been removed from the equation, this investigation had developed a life of its own, and it continued to work away behind the scenes as the war debates occupied the attention of Parliament. Lionel Cranfield stuck his teeth into the issue and saw an opportunity to once again prove his usefulness to James. The investigation was set to present its initial findings to Parliament when it reconvened in February 1622. Buckingham was not looking forward to that date on his calendar. If anyone followed the money in Ireland, they would end up at his doorstep. But hey, if James was frustrated enough with Parliament that he dissolved it in December, then that February session never happens. An Irish investigation might still go forward, but it would be a royal investigation, not a parliamentary one. In other words, one Buckingham could exert far more influence over. The theory is speculative, but one final piece of circumstantial evidence is relevant, the fate of Dudley Diggs. Rather than being punished for his role in turning the debate in Parliament against Spain, Diggs came out of the session with the civil service job he had been angling for. He had impressed Buckingham with his influence in the House, and as a result, the royal favourite landed him a prominent place on a royal commission. Which commission? The commission investigating Ireland, of course. Buckingham had his inside man. So the Parliament of 1621 did not bring England into the war in Europe after all. But it was the site of the opening salvo in a much more exciting war. The battlefield of this clandestine struggle would be the bureaucratic and administrative channels of the Kingdom of Ireland. Next time, Buckingham and Cranfield, once friends and allies, will square off across the Irish Sea. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.